Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm your host. Most of our guests are people who you describe as actors, directors, authors, and those people are all great to talk to because they are knee-deep in the creative field. But today we're going to welcome an academic, and I personally really like having academics on there because when you have a discussion of science fiction, I find they tend to be the best to provide a big-picture, long-term view of the topic. So I'm going to welcome Dr. Lisa Yazik from Georgia Tech. Let's go. On mic today, we have Dr. Lisa Yazik from Georgia Tech. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I am so excited to talk to you because I went to a college and I had a great time, but it did not have anything close to what Georgia Tech has, which is a sci-fi program, a sci-fi collection, which is called Sci-Fi at Tech, and you help coordinate that? Right. Yeah. So we have um, the science fiction collection. So sci-fi at tech covers all of our initiatives, including our collection, our science fiction laboratory and our science fiction minor. And hopefully we're going to be starting an online journal as well soon. So we're very excited about that. But the collection is just the science fiction collection at tech. And it's a wonderful collection. It was started by my predecessor, Bud Foote, who started science fiction studies at tech in the 1970s. And then when he retired in the 1990s, he left us 8,000 science fiction items, and that became the of our collection. Uh, since then, I've been partnering with the library, and we have been growing the collection. We're about 14,000 items right now. And according to science fiction studies, we're one of the top 20 research collections in the world, which is great. And it's true. We've had people come as far as Puerto Rico and as near as Georgia State, which is just a half mile up the road, to come and work with us there. That is phenomenal. And... Not only do you have a a collection of resources there for your students, but you actually create uh, events and you create uh, foundations for them to build careers in the science fiction field and outside the science fiction field as well. Yeah, that's something that we've been working on largely through the lab. So students have the opportunity to do a lot of different kinds of activities in our lab. Uh, We've had a podcast, we've had a radio show, we've had Twitch streams, we have someone who's preparing to do video journalism. But I think some of the more exciting things we've had the opportunity to do is to partner both with different groups around Georgia Tech and then different groups in the science fiction community yeah, and produce events with them. So that's been really exciting for us. Um, In fact, right now, we're actually working with the UG Award Committee. And the UG Award is an award for short speculative fiction that's given out at Dragon Con every year. And since Dragon Con went online, we thought this was a great opportunity to start expanding our presence um, for the UG Award online. So my students right now are producing videos. They've produced an entire uh, video celebration of the nominees and the award. They're making PR uh, materials for a symposium that we're going to be holding virtually at Georgia Tech in a month. And they're getting real life experience, which is exciting. These are things they can put in their portfolio as design students and and take that with them later on. That's that's really exciting. And I think back and I think the reason I my school didn't really push students in that direction, didn't offer those kinds of resources was because it's very hard to make the connection to the average person as to how science fiction is important to our everyday lives and how um, we were talking off mic earlier about how it's the oldest form of literature. It's the oldest form of storytelling. Right, right. I mean, people have always imagined uh, going to strange new worlds and, and meeting strange new people. Um, for better or for worse, often in really exciting and fun ways, sure. I think that the reason that it works so well at a technical institute is for the simple reason that we are a technical institute and and science and technology is the fabric of our lives. 
our, our motto at Georgia Tech is progress and service. And I think by that we mean technological progress and service to humanity as a whole through that. And in, in some ways that's fundamentally what science fiction is about, right? This idea yeah. of that, that brave sentient beings can, can put aside their differences or at least recognize and negotiate their differences and pool their knowledge to build better futures for all. And, and so I think that is a message that resonates deeply with our community. And in fact, I know that uh, I, even now, and I've been at tech for a while, I can travel around campus and people say, oh, so engineers will come to me and say, oh, you're you're the science fiction professor, one of the science fiction professors. We we totally get what we are doing, but what's up with those Shakespeare people? And <laughs> Shakespeare people are amazing and Shakespeare's important to your life. You need to have Shakespeare too. And Shakespeare wrote some speculative kinds of stories I'd point out. So. Um, but I think it really tells you how natural it feels to people at Georgia Tech to do this kind of work, right? Because these are the stories that dramatize the kinds of work our students are looking to pursue. And it's an amazing mirror onto the present and onto people's hopes and fears about science and technology. Um, not to mention just a great way to break the ice when you have to have conversations with people you don't know. It's never a bad thing to just go up to somebody and say, have you seen the new Star Wars movie? Yeah, right? It's, we were talking about this. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I say, it's a heck of an icebreaker. Yeah, right. I think that you can literally talk to almost anyone in the world, and even if they don't know anything about science fiction, they'll still have an opinion about it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's an amazing, because we talk a lot, and especially we're hearing this a lot, I think, in the United States right now, about what a divided world we are and how little we have in common, but we really do have things that are in common. And science fiction is a common culture to us all. It's a big tent. It can hold lots of perspectives, uh, lots of ways of thinking about the world. And and so I was just reading a poll that said 67% of Americans feel we should be nicer to each other. And I say, let's start some science fiction conversations. That is, all, okay, I don't know if you've seen any other episodes of this show prior to today, but what you've just said is something that I have brought up again and again. So it's like we're right on the same wavelength here. Um, as I, we talk about, it's, now, we don't talk about a lot of politics in the show. We don't talk about a lot of current events because there's places you can go for that. Absolutely. But what I will say is that we are struggling now and we can't have these conversations. We can't have discussions about things that are very, very important. Right. So why am I, if we can't talk about a TV show or a book, how are we going to talk about those things that are much more pressing to our lives? Let's exactly. start here. Let's, let's talk about Star Trek. Let's talk about Asimov, and then let's work our way to those other things. Yeah, well, I've been absolutely finding that as I've been, uh, I taught a science fiction class uh, online this summer, and I'm teaching science fiction again this fall. And uh, students at Tech are always really excited to take science fiction. They're very engaged. It's always a lot of fun and really talky. But students at Tech, I think much like your podcast, generally don't do a lot with politics. I mean, I think they have political convictions, mm -hmm. but it's not like at the top of our conversations necessarily. Mm -hmm. But what's been interesting is that every single story suddenly brings up discussions about the real world that they really, intellectually, students always see how science fiction can be a funhouse mirror to the world, how it shows us not just other worlds and other times, but ourselves from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And... I think it was an Emily Dickinson who wrote, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And in some ways, that's what science fiction can do for us. And it's been really exciting to see my students use this as the opportunity to explore, not necessarily launch into big political debates, but to explore their hopes and fears for the world as it's currently unfolding around them and to think about how they can contribute to, to shift things into a better place. 
but it's just been amazing. Every single story is suddenly just luminescent with meaning to them. And they're like, Professor Yazik, did you pick this story because of the resonance? And I'm like, no, I've been teaching this story for seven years. It just happens to really hit right now. Um, and that's been a really interesting experience, but kind of exciting to see that it seems to provide um, a, a way to let off some of that steam and have some of these conversations that need to start. And science fiction gets a lot of due credit when you say, well, we looked at the future and we saw, you know, television was in t science fiction 50 years before it actually happened and jet engines and space travel, all these things happen. We're great at recognizing technology showing up in science fiction, but there's so many other parts of life that science yeah. fiction is calling the shots on. And we just now figured out we can look at science fiction and say, man, I would like to have a world where people live longer, where they have more fulfilling lives. And what do we want to put in those lives right. if we have the extra years? Yes, that's such a great point. Um, I teach a short story from 1929 by Leslie F. Stone. She was a pioneering science fiction writer, and it's called A Letter of the 24th Century. And I love to teach it because it's a two-page utopia. So you know how long, utopias are often very, very long, and they get kind of boring because mm -hmm. everyone keeps explaining things. In two pages, you can do the killer best utopia ever because it, it's just very condensed. And it's uh, in this future, everyone is online. They do all of their education, all of their politics, all of their shopping, all of their art on the internet. And she basically anticipates the internet in 1929. And this makes sense. Stone knew uh, Hugo Gernsback. He was involved in the first television experiments. All you had to do was extrapolate a little and you could imagine TV for the world, right? Mm -hmm. But my students are really struck all of a sudden by reading this. like. They're always like, oh, interesting, the internet, but now they just grab onto their, oh, look at all these people in this world doing their education online. They're like, oh my gosh, how did she guess this? And then as they're reading the story, they realize like, oh, they all went online because there was, because of disease. And they're like, oh dudes, it's just like now. And then they look at the date, they're like, wait, this was just 10 years after the, the great influenza epidemic. And they're like, oh my gosh. And it's just, again, it's interesting how they can see people from the past working through some of the same issues we're working through today. And it felt like kind of a relief for them in some ways to know that this wasn't unique, that people have grappled with these problems in history before and uh, and experimented. And then the next thing they love in the, in the story is people do live longer. There's all these health improvements. And because they're living longer and they have all this access to art and politics, they have to find ways to fill their time, right? And it does, it becomes a surfeit of uh, art and, 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 and good politics for all. Sure. And uh, you would hope that and that that would be the case. I mean, I know if I somebody guaranteed me an extra 10 years, mm -hmm. I would try to spend them doing something productive. And I know people who wouldn't. Yeah. And and there's a story to be written about that, too. Actually, I, there are two stories that have been written about that. that I'm I, sure there are. Yeah, I'm sure there's more, too. But I'm thinking um, Cory Doctorow's Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, right, is exactly about this. It imagines a, a post-scarcity uh, future. This is a book from the 1990s. And it imagines a, a post-scarcity world. We have enough of everything. Um, computers can give us everything we need to, to survive and survive rather nicely. And humanity can uh, either live for a very long time or people can go uh, into cryogenic uh, sleep and, and reboot again in a thousand years. We've figured out how to make this work. So there's all kinds of things that can happen and everyone uploads their brains once a week so that if something happens to your body, you can be downloaded into a new version of your body. Um, and it's a story about a guy who murders his best friend and what happens in this world when you murder your best friend, um, especially because then the friend comes back and is really angry at him about the whole situation. 
But what's really interesting here is just the idea of this world where people can live very long lives in very different ways, and they all have to, to work for the approval of others. Because even though this is a world where um, basic food and shelter is provided, the social approval of your peers is not. And so everything becomes like a gigantic Amazon marketplace and everything you do with your life is uploaded into the internet that everyone is mentally connected into and then everyone ranks your effort. So you have to do good in the world because if people give you bad rankings, uh, machines stop working for you because the sentient machines are plugged in as well. So if they know that you murdered your best friend and everyone thinks you're a real jerk for doing that, like all, so in this character, all of a sudden, like vending machines won't give them food. The elevators are like, nah, screw you. You can't do that. You got to take the stairs. We're not going to help you out. And so I kind of like this idea that um, we would have to do something productive with ourselves. Like you don't get to just do nothing because otherwise you get sort of the disapproval of your peers. Although that also sounds very busy, doesn't it? It'd be very tiring after mm -hmm. a while. Um, but I know Nancy Cress has written about this as well in a short story called Nano Comes to Clifford Falls, where she imagines a world where we get na cheap, unlimited nanotechnology and so we can produce anything we want. And the world divides suddenly, not into the haves and have nots, but into those who like to work and those who never want to work again. And they have to figure out a way to get along with each other. And it's like it's it's as it becomes as tense as any race or gender or national divisions ever have. So. Yeah, people do think about that, right? Yeah, and that was just one example I came up with. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that, aside from technologies, things that concern us in our lives, you know, love, health, uh, knowledge, pursuit, and adventure. Is, these things could all change depending on what science fiction has pushed, put out for us. Yeah, and I think that's something that we've seen people increasingly explore since the new wave in the 1960s and 70s, right, as science fiction began to turn inward and think, about not just how does science and technology change society, but how do people react to those kinds of change? And does it change our emotions, right? I mean, will there be new or different kinds of emotions? I mean, there's so many kinds of amazing things. We already see, right, family relationships radically changed by science and technology. Since something as simple as making the birth control pill legal in 1960 sort of changed the way people thought about sexuality and marriage and, and children and family planning. So, Absolutely, these things are all tied together. And I love science fiction that looks as much at the emotional and social changes as it does the uh, big technological changes. And it's odd to me that science fiction doesn't often get this kind of a discussion in the world because people just brush it off as being pop culture, which it's great for that too, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But um, people will embrace humor and they will embrace parody and, and it, it's the silliness because and that's a, that's a valid way of social commentary that but because i guess because it's more accessible because making people laugh is a bit better than making them scared i don't know yeah well i think that science fiction does both sometimes it makes us really scared and sometimes it does make us laugh sure. right? um and that's an interesting question it's something i know my students really grapple with themselves they're they they, they they have a hard time imagining how science fiction can be funny and serious all at once but then you remind them of um, Hitchhiker's Guide and, and then they get it all of a sudden, mm -hmm. right? So absolutely. Um, and, and I do think occasionally we have science fiction that is meant to scare us. A lot of the nuclear war fiction of the 50s and 60s was absolutely designed to get people scared and get them out and, and doing activism, anti-war activism for sure. Um, and we know that. And, and those authors are proud of that fact, in fact. Um, 
But you're right. There's also this wonderful tradition of humor that begins with the beginning of the genre itself. Um, the modern genre, at least, 1902, George Millet's A Trip to the Moon, which is a delightful little uh, movie, and it's a you know science fictional trip to the moon. It's a mashup of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells' stories, and but it's played for laughs. Millet was a vaudeville uh, magician, and he brought a lot of his screen tricks with him, and, and a lot of the movie is funny, and it's really cool to watch. Um, it's very silly, and a lot of my students will say, oh, it's just played for you know joke or laughs. But then you realize what it does is it gets you really excited about space travel in a time when no one was really thinking about space travel. Mm -hmm. And and that's cool, using humor rather than something else, maybe. It also has some sort of weird moments where they beat up on the people from the moon and, and enslave them. But but it's played for laughs, <laughs> for better or for worse. It, but, it is. And I, it becomes just my, my personal favorite part is that the, the very beginning when they just pretty much to say, oh, we're bored today. Let's go to the moon. It, it, it's <laughs> it's great. I love. It's funny. I love. I love all the uh, Trump Deloy things that happen too. I, I love the tricks. I love it when the one explorer plants his umbrella in the ground and it turns into a mushroom. Mm -hmm. It's funny for, for for a lot of my students. I've noticed that's the make or break point. Like either they're they're they love the movie. They're like that is the best thing ever, or they're like no, just no, can't do that with you. But it is a beautiful movie and it's got really cool design in it too. It does. So. It shows you a certain sophistication in the genre, I think, from the very beginning, really. And when you, I look at something like that, and I, I miss that kind of storytelling because once you know, in in the sixties and seventies, once we actually saw our own space travel take forth, and was like, okay, this is what the reality is going to be like. I think that restricted us a little bit in terms of the fantasies we could come up with, because then having something to hold it up to against, we we stopped using our imagination in that regard it's a little bit. Right. Well, it's true. And I think you can see that, right, that if you look through the history of science fiction, all of our early encounter with the alien other stories are meeting people on the moon. And then those stories dry up around 1860 when you get the first commercial telescopes and your modern person, average person can buy one and clearly see there is no life on the moon. Right. So all of a sudden it shifts to Mars. And even though really by the 40s and 50s, people kind of knew there really wasn't much atmosphere on Mars and we weren't really just going to be able to go be John Carter of Mars and just jump over to Mars and live there. You still see like Lee, Lee Brackett and Ray Bradbury giving us those very romantic visions of a populated Mars. And people want that, right? I think we don't wanna be alone in the universe. Uh, just this week, right? We have found out that there is potentially life on Venus that we're seeing some sort of chemical signatures in the atmosphere of Venus that suggests it's probably gonna be that kind of life that's right on the border between life and a life, I'm sure. I'm gonna mess up all the philosophers and like, you know, people who think they've got a lock on life. Mm -hmm. But still, we're so excited. We don't even care if we just meet bacteria. We wanna meet yeah. something, right? Um, and I think that that's wonderful, especially we can be so afraid of each other and on, on Earth, but if we can maybe not be afraid of meeting other kinds of people out off Earth, maybe we can bring that back, that attitude with us. That's a really great point, and I, I don't think we've helped, we've given up on Mars just yet because now it's the the, the idea is yeah. well, there's not life on Mars now, but right. there, there could have been. We want to hold out hope that there could have been. Right. That right. makes it easier somehow. Absolutely. Right. And I know that when we found water on Mars a few years ago and people at Georgia Tech were involved in that effort, there was so much rejoicing about that. And it's something that our astrobiology group talks about a lot. Um, I've, I've actually asked some of our scientists, I said, so when are we going to find life? And they tell me within five years, if all goes well, 
And again, it's going to be that kind of life that's uh, bacterial life right at the verge between life and non-life. It's going to mess everyone up. But um, there's a lot of hope to find a life uh, around the thermal vents on some of Saturn's moons and Jupiter's moons, I know. So it's a EO. I'm, I can't remember which ones they, is right, they are right now, but there's, there's a good deal of hope uh, that they're going to find something. And people are really excited about it. Well, I mean, it's one of those things that once you establish that there is life off of this planet, it doesn't matter what kind of life it is. That's really irrelevant. It's just a matter of finding something when up until now we've been told nothing. Yeah. One of the things I think that's really cool that I'm noticing when I talk to people in the astrobiology community, and, and I think you see this reflected in people who write this kind of science fiction as well, is that as we approach, as we come close to the idea that we might be encountering life elsewhere, it's become really critical to look at ourselves and to look at ourselves as potential contaminants. And so that's one of the big discussions that happens right now is if we meet this other life, like what's the prime directive? And not necessarily in a Star Trek sense of like, oh, we can't go in and like, you know, give the natives technology that'll allow them to go to space. But how do we study this life without smearing our own fingerprints all over it and destroying it or radically changing it? So this is something that the astrobiologists are thinking about. like. If there's potentially life on, like, say, EO, how do we get a probe there without it taking all of uh, Earth's germs with it and Earth materials and compromising what we're studying there? Apparently, the answer is to throw something as hard and fast as you can and hope that a quick hit will cause less damage. And I'm like, wow, that's so science fictional. I love it. It's really, it really cool. To think yeah, we're down to the nitty gritty now of how do we do this and how do we do it in a, in a sort of respectful and scientifically useful way, I think. That is unreal. And it's amazing how these these conversations become cyclical and then and, and that getting just from point A to point B becomes something that we've done for years and years to something that we have to reinvent all over again. Yes, absolutely. It's really interesting that way. And I hope that as our scientists are thinking about this, that they're going to go and check out science fiction. Right. I mean, because it's a virtual laboratory. So, so many people have run these scenarios again and again in so many ways that um, why not let some of the some other people do some of the lifting for you and sort of look at some of the scenarios that could come up? And it's one of those cases where the more types of brains you have, the better off you're going to be. You need people, which, which is why I was amazing that Sci-Fi at Tech was a perfect blending of sciences and humanities together, working at in and sharing resources, which in mm -hmm. other situations they wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, we're really fortunate that we uh, have a community that wants to explore that here at Georgia Tech. But I think our scientists are, are really aware of the need to create a culture of citizen scientists and to do public outreach. I think that, you know, uh, when living through a pandemic makes so clear that scientific processes are very complicated and that we all need to talk about them and have better understandings of them. And I think it's really cool to see our scientists have been thinking about this long before the pandemic. Um, but doing, they do things like science taverns. So we, they do like events at bars and um, we're gonna be doing an event next week where um, everyone watches Star Wars and then I'll be partnered with two engineers and we'll be talking about the significance of science and technology and its impact on society there. So. Um, it, it is. It's, I'm really in a place where we get to do a lot of that, and it's been very exciting. I, have, I can't believe it. I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, kind of projects, are, are there any specific goals that the sci-fi has going forward? Right. So we do have a 
few goals going forward. We are, well, right now we're waiting to see what our next phase of the lab is going to be, um, whether or not we're going to continue to do creative production or pivot to doing more work on events. We're sort of in a moment where we're reassessing where we're going to go. We do this every five years or so. We do know we are partnering with another science fiction professor in modern languages, and she's going to be doing um, she has just started a new online journal for global science fiction studies. So we're hoping that we'll be able to work with her and support her on that. So we really want to um, make, we're kind of the best kept secret at Georgia Tech. We don't want to be a secret anymore. We want other people to know what we're doing. So we're trying to do more outward facing projects like the journal, like partnering with other people outside of Georgia Tech or across Georgia Tech for events. And I think that that's probably where we'll be for a while. Um, as the science fiction community has moved online during the pandemic, there has been, as, as is true everywhere in the art world, so much wonderful free art that people have access to. And again, it's a way for us to connect across time and space and do something we all enjoy together. So we really want to be part of that. And like you were and I were talking off mic earlier, there are things that Georgia Tech creates that are can be accessible anywhere in the world. Your podcasts, your, your, yep. <clears throat> your news bulletins and so forth. I'm going to make sure that all that goes into our show notes. So if somebody sure. like me has no access to Georgia Tech's campus, mm -hmm. but would love to just be part of this or at least keep an eye on things, they'll be able to do that. Absolutely. I can let you know we have um, a website and we have, right, the podcasts are all on YouTube. You can go look for the Sci-Fi Lab on YouTube. It turns out there is another podcast called the Sci-Fi Lab. So you'll want to look for the one at Georgia Tech. And um, we had a Twitch stream. I, I don't know if any of that is still available, but people could go. I can, I can find out and let you know. And we will be hosting events that will be free and open to the public online um, throughout the year. So I'm happy to share that with you and you can pass that information along to any interested uh, listeners or viewers. Okay, Lisa, uh, let me go ahead and let you go. But before I do, can I go ahead and get any contact information for you or social media info that you'd like to share? Sure, absolutely. Um, people who want to look for what we're doing at Georgia Tech, you can either just Google sci-fi at tech or I can give you a web address right now. It is sci-fi.lmc.gatech.edu. And that's a great place to, it's a portal that'll bring you in and give you a sort of overview of the things that we're doing in the lab. Other things you can do, you can go check out the Sci-Fi Lab podcast on YouTube. Again, just do Sci-Fi Lab Georgia Tech and it should come up. Or Sci-Fi Lab DJ, because DJ Baker is the host of that. And that will also help you come up with it. Finally, if anyone's interested in the kind of work that I'm doing as an independent scholar, I'm a scholar who works on the recovery of lost voices in science fiction and the discovery of new voices. You could go check out my Amazon author page. That's probably the easiest way to find out what's going on um, with us professionally. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. I'm really excited about all this, and I'm really glad I found this little not-so-hidden treasure anymore. I hope so. Thanks so much for helping us get out the good word, Aaron. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. I would like to thank Dr. Yazik for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the community building part of the show today, and I remind you community building tips are something that I do that costs you nothing and takes less than five minutes of your time, I want to just make an announcement that this show is now available on Amazon Music in their podcast section. So if you know somebody who happens to be a dedicated Kindle user, you can now go ahead and 
recommend our show on their platform of choice. You can subscribe to this show on Amazon Music and also Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.